Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So the pad printer has landed. The pad printer has landed uh, after uh, a miserable drive down to Toronto and back, and uh, we did a short turnaround. It was uh, We were there for less than 24 hours. Is driving in Toronto ever not miserable? Uh, yeah, fortunately, the driving in Toronto this time wasn't too bad. It was, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty reasonable. It was getting to Toronto that was a problem. The, uh, the weather was pretty miserable on uh, Monday night when we drove down. We had heavy rain and some, uh, horrible, horrible drivers, uh, and uh, trying to avoid the, the 401 and the disaster that that is. We, uh, took a few back roads and ended up on the uh, 407 toll road. And those back roads were littered with horrible, horrible drivers. So it was a bit stressful driving down, but uh, once we were there, it was pretty easy because we were in the north of the city. So we were out of the uh, the hell that is sort of central Toronto when it comes to being in a car. I would have imagined that the ride home would have been more stressful with the precious cargo in the back. No, it wasn't too bad. It was um, the printer is small enough that we were able to fit it into the back of the car, and that was uh, pretty reasonable. And because we were leaving early, early afternoon, we, we avoided a lot of the horrible traffic. It was a pretty reasonable drive back. It was mostly just exhausting because I hadn't been getting a lot of sleep with uh, with all the work going on and the driving and everything. So it was just a, a long 24 hours. So is it all that you had hoped for? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. We managed to get some training on the printer. I say we, uh, Tamara joined me on this trip. Uh, the two of us went down. We were able to uh, to get the printer set up so it was my printer that was set up in the shop on tuesday morning when we went in uh, they had my print plate in in hand and i brought down some sample pieces of metal to uh, print on so as we were doing the setup and the testing and and the experimentation and everything it was actually being done with my own print and uh, so that was nice to be able to see and yeah the the quality of the printing out of it is excellent uh, there's still obviously a lot of tweaking that I need to do in terms of getting the uh, inconsistency down just right, as well as the pad pressure and things like that. But even just for the the couple of sample parts that we did, it was uh, pretty impressive, the, the quality of printing that it was getting. So what was it like to see your print in the metal for the first time? Yeah, it was nice to be able to uh, to see that. It, it's, uh, it really solidifies the design in my mind of what I'm doing. I, I've printed it out on paper a couple of times and and I've even done some transfer. I think we've talked about that a little bit in the past where I've used a transfer system that takes uh, toner from a laser printer and allows you to bake it onto a piece of metal. And that works okay. Uh, you know, you get a, a good idea of what it's going to look like, but it's nowhere near as sharp and as, as clear as what you're getting out of a pad printer. So it was really nice to be able to see that and just how crisp it is. And just to the naked eye, it looks like somebody's, you know, sort of engraved a, a black line in, in your metal. And uh, it, uh, it really is a, a, nice, a nice look when you're, uh, when you're looking at that piece of metal. And how was the training itself at Kent? And the training was really good. It was basically as comprehensive as we wanted it to be. Uh, I was able to get in there and actually work on some of the troubleshooting techniques and tips, uh, look at how it was designed and how it was made. So uh, we yanked the covers off of the machine and they were showing me everything that was set up in there, where things were set up, uh, their control boards, their the pneumatic system that's in there. So that was really nice. I was, I was happy to be able to see that. 
even though they're not manufacturing the parts at their facility in the north of Toronto, they are uh, assembling it all there. So they're getting all the, the individual components from China and from their facility there, and then they're assembling them in Toronto. So they need to understand and know how the system works and, and what's going on. So it, it was nice to be able to, to talk to people who were knowledgeable about it and see just how simple the, the setup is, um, how easy it is to troubleshoot the machine. Uh, it's a you know it's a relatively simple machine to uh, to deal with, especially compared to some of the CNC machines that I I work on. So that was really nice. And then on top of that, we were able to sort of play around with it a bit and and see all of the different adjustments that can be done from a printing point of view, everything from speed and pressure and things like that. So yeah, it was uh, it was really nice to have that that resource available to be able to uh, to be able to go through it. So in terms of troubleshooting, what are some of the things that can tend to go wrong with with a pad printer like this? Well, the nice thing with these printers is the, um, the as I said, the design is really quite simple. The pneumatics tend not to fail. Uh, their you know, pneumatic systems have been around for a long time, and uh, that's what's actually pushing the pad and things like that around and, and getting it in the right spot. So moving it back and forth and then also pushing it down onto the, onto the part. Uh, so that's that's all being done through pneumatics, and that's very very simple. The control board that's driving that is quite simple, and it's a single part. So if something fails on that control board, it's very easy for them just to send you a replacement control board, and then you're back up and running very quickly. Uh, then the only other part that's on there that really needs to be con- you really need to be concerned with is the power supply. And again, that's a, a relatively simple part. They tend not to fail, uh, so that's not really a big deal either. Um, the mechanics of it, it's just a couple of linear rails, you know, and a, and a sort of a heavy duty machine, uh, a couple of adjustment points that you can adjust things like, um, you know, just using screws and things like that. So it, none of it's particularly complicated and that makes it very, very easy to troubleshoot. And it's, uh, it's nice. So really the electronics that are in there, that's the only thing that can, that sort of can go wrong. That's difficult to deal with. And the the way that you deal with it is basically replacing the, the control board. And that's sort of, it takes five minutes to pull out the existing control board and put a new one in. So that's not particularly difficult. So it sounds like it was built with serviceability in mind then, which is nice. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. These are designed to be used in production environments where they're being used day in and day out. This is an older one that they don't sell anymore. And it's a relatively simple unit compared to a lot of the ones that they have out there now. Uh, like one of the ones they had on the floor uh, it was running through cycle tests. So it was just cycling over and over again without any printing. And it was designed for doing multiple color printing. So it actually has multiple pads, uh, multiple plates, and it would move the part from one, you know, sort of on a conveyor belt from one piece to or one print to the next so that you could get the, the different colors going. And then of course it had a cleaning cycle in the middle of it and stuff like that. So yeah, some of them get far more complex than than the ones that um, the one that I've got. This is pretty simple, and even the more complex ones are still relatively simple in terms of of how they're designed. They're not using complex servos or you know anything like that. Like this, it's just just pure simplicity, and that's what was appealing about this machine is that it was very very simple to use and still automated. Uh, it doesn't involve me operating it with a lever or sitting there with my squeegee and you know, manually inking up the plates and things like that. So 
Yeah, that, that's the appealing thing about this machine. Well, the more advanced one makes me think of the seeing the minifigures go through the the factory at the the Lego plant. <laughs> but it's really neat to see that them come to life and receive their their face or a smack of lipstick or multicolor passes on the the body sections of uh, the Lego minifigures. It's really quite remarkable that the number of pad painting machines that uh, the Lego Group has in operation twenty four seven. Yeah, I can't even imagine how many machines they must have going at any one time because so many, well, so many parts in the world, everybody handles things on a daily basis that are pad printed and most people probably don't realize it. It's just so ubiquitous and it's also very versatile in terms of the different types of things that it can do. Everything from something solid like obviously a a watch dial like what I'm doing or even a a Lego minifig, which is a relatively solid piece of, of plastic all the way to something very flexible like a stress ball uh, all of that can be easily pad printed and it's um and t-shirts as well i, I didn't realize that uh, some t-shirts were actually being pad printed uh instead of doing silk screening so it, it's incredible just how versatile it is and i don't think it's a technology that's going to be replaced anytime soon in a lot of industries because it is just so simple to use mm-hmm. and it's you know it's bulletproof it's reliable it's um yeah it's just the perfect the perfect tool for what it's for what it's designed for and the fidelity and consistency of what it's reproducing is just so impressive too like there's really isn't much else that can compare yeah it's funny because i so the plates that i have had done are they were laser etched plates and i i was warned that the accuracy of the laser plates are good but they're you know there's there's not quite as high quality as the the photo etched plates that are out there. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, we'll, we'll see what they're like. Honestly, it is so good. Um, I've got some, some little square dots that are underneath one of the letters on my, uh, my name. And with the naked eye, they look perfect. They look exactly like what they're supposed to be. They look like they're nice and sharp and square under a loop. You can see some of the problems with it. But I mean, you need a, you know, you need a five or 10 X loop to start seeing the problems with it. And I suspect that some of that stuff that can be covered up a little bit by improving the plates and the etching and, or doing multiple prints, uh, you know, going over it a couple of times because I was just doing single passes with the ink. Uh, so there's certain things that'll, that'll get covered up when, uh, when you do a couple of passes. Yeah, it's amazing. And the, the quality of print that you're getting out of it is, uh, is quite remarkable. Well, looking at watch dials day in and day out under a loop, I am frequently impressed by the, the subtle details that a pad printer is able to leave behind uh, on a dial and just <laughs> how remarkably consistent it is between dials from a, a given manufacturer. Yeah, and in this, one of the things that I've noticed with the um, the, the laser etched plate that I've got is um, the laser's basically etch it away in sort of a a grid pattern and that grid pattern is actually showing up in the print Uh, i can see you know the i mean those laser dots are about a thousandth of an inch about 25 microns in diameter and i can actually see the laser pattern that was used to etch the plates when i look at it under a loop which is pretty impressive um, that, that it's pulling that level of detail mm-hmm. off of the um, off of the print plate. 
and depositing it back onto the the dial. So that's that's one of those things that I have to figure out how to how to sort of get around. Uh, but again, unless you're looking at it under a loop, nobody's going to notice exactly what it is. And um, it actually adds a little bit to the depth of the solid colors is having having that little bit of sort of rasterization in inside of the body of it. Uh, it, it ends up uh, giving it a little bit more detail and a little bit more depth. I'm not surprised at all to hear that it is picking that sort of detail up. Yeah, uh, it's um, I, I wasn't expecting it to uh, to be able to do um, to do this. I knew it was going to give me a lot of the quality that I wanted, but uh, I am I am in so happy with what it's what it's doing and i'm I'm really looking forward to in the new year to being able to actually sit down and and start sort of plugging away at it and, and getting it uh getting it working regularly same thing with fine lines i've got uh registration lines on this piece that are again maybe 25 microns across and it's rendering those lines absolutely perfectly and um, nice sharp crisp detail nice thin line and uh, it's it's remarkable just just that level of detail that you're getting out of it. I noticed on the the plates you had done that they're not mirrored finished on the the surface. Do you know what grain they they've dropped down to in in terms of the the micron level? Is that like a five U paper they run over it? Or at what point are those small abrasions that are, are visible from whatever? lapping film was used to to finish the surface at what point are, are those going to be picked up by by the printing press so the plate itself is actually covered in lacquer and it's very very smooth um much smoother than i mean it's it's going to be down in the micron range probably in terms of smoothness i don't know at what point you're going to start seeing scratches coming off of it i noticed there there are a couple of little scratches on it so it'll be interesting to see sort of as I use those plates and as they as they get worn just see how they hold up and and at what point as you say I start seeing transfer from from those scratches I know that it is very easy to damage these plates and pass that information you know pass those scratches from the damage onto uh the the printing um now if it's in a place that's non you know that, that you don't have a a design part of your design you could touch it back up again I suspect you know, put something, put some kind of lacquer on it just to sort of cover it up again. Uh, so uh, it, it's, you know, it would be possible to repair them if uh, if you needed to. But uh, at that point, I would probably just get a new plate engraved. I didn't realize they were lacquered. So that, that answers the question then. So the, the lacquer is, is offering a, a fair amount of forgiveness then in, in the actual service finish of, of the metal. Uh, so I I was surprised that the pad printer hadn't picked up those, those micro scratches, but knowing now that's yep. lacquer, that that explains everything. That's almost like putting a, a surface treatment on on the metal itself, in the same way that in watchmaking we use something like epilum on the escapement to get that uh, adhesion of the lubricant nice and, and tight and, and not drifting, because there's there's nowhere for the lubricant to drift other than exactly where it was put. Exactly, and and that's that, and that's the way that these laser plates are set up. Now, if you're getting a plate that's supposed to be photo etched, they I don't believe they are lacquered. I think that they are just raw metal. Uh, so these plates are actually aluminum plates; they're not steel plates. If you're doing a photo etch process on it, then you're actually going to use a steel plate. Those I don't believe are lacquered. So I don't know what sort of finishes on those. I I haven't actually seen one of those. 
So do you see yourself ever moving to the, the steel plates or are you going to stick with the, the laser etched? I just don't see enough of an advantage. I mean, I, I guess I should maybe try and have some of my designs put into a steel plate just to see um, if there's enough of a a quality advantage to make it worth my while. The biggest advantage of the steel plates over the aluminum ones is the number of impressions you can get reliably before you start having damage. So I think you're talking about a couple of thousand prints typically on the aluminum plates, whereas you're talking about tens of thousands uh, if not maybe 100,000 prints off of the steel ones, which for some people would be a significant uh, consideration. Uh, in my case, I'm probably never going to hit the number of pl- uh, prints where that really becomes a problem, uh, you know, where it, it just it, it wears the plate out. If I print 2,000 of a dial, I would be shocked, and I can easily get another print, you know, another print plate made. So it would be worth at that point for me to do it. So that that isn't enough of a concern for me. Uh, in terms of cost, the photo etch plates are certainly more expensive. Uh, they're I think they're around one hundred and twenty dollars Canadian to get a single image put onto one of those plates, whereas the laser etched ones you can have two images put onto the plate, so one at each end, and that's around seventy five dollars Canadian. That that's a consideration, although not a huge consideration for me. I can, you know, I can certainly justify the extra cost if if it is going to be significantly better quality print, like if it's going to be that much sharper. So I may do one just to see what it's like and just to see how good it is. But um, I, I suspect I'm just going to go with the, the laser etched plates. You mentioned earlier, it's, uh, you need to play a little more with the ink consistency. And you also touched on the, the rasterization that is actually being pulled over from the print is the what you intend to do with the inconsistency to try and, and fudge that rasterization a little bit, or is it an, another issue that you're, you're attempting to address with, with the consistency of the inks? It, with a slightly thinner ink, it will fill in some of that rasterization a little bit. Uh, it'll it'll want to fill in those little dots, and that, uh, that would be ideal for me. Uh, I have to play with that a little bit. So when you're mixing up the inks, the inks out of the tin are much too thick for pad printing. You know, they're they're not designed to be used completely out of the tin as they are. Uh, you do have to put some thinner in the um, in the ink and and mix it up, uh, which is you know fine because you're often mixing multiple inks anyways to get the color that you want, uh, and then you mix in some some thinner to get it uh, to the consistency that you want. So you do have to be careful with that. You can't go too thin, otherwise. It just doesn't want to uh, stick properly, and if it's too thick, it's not necessarily going to want to pick up off of the plate properly. So there, there is sort of a sweet spot, and it's it's roughly ten percent thinner to the uh, the ink based on weight. Uh, so that's that's sort of what you're what you're going for. But within that, there is a little bit of a you know sort of a fudge factor, and then also depending on how humid it is, if it's a if it's more humid, then you'll want to add a little bit more thinner to it uh, so that it can. Um, so the ink will actually dry faster after you print it. If it's too thick, then the ink won't dry very fast or, uh, you know, and, and then you start running into other problems uh, when you're printing. So there's there's a bunch of different variables that are involved there and, and it's uh, sort of a balance of trying to get that right. So what is the thinner that you're using? It's a special th- uh, thinner for this particular ink. It's designed specifically for this ink. Uh, when it comes to the cleanup, you can just use any lacquer thinner, and that'll actually uh, clean it up properly. But when it comes to thinning the inks for 
the for actual printing there is a, a specific thinner that they the company has made for this uh this ink that's compatible with it and isn't going to break it down and and isn't going to cause problems and flashes off fast enough so that it'll it'll actually dry properly and things like that you mentioned one of the more advanced machines actually had a cleaning cycle built into to the workflow uh, that's something I, I had never heard of before with a, a pad printer. How exactly does that function, or did you get much of a sense? It's ridiculously simple. What they're when we're talking about cleaning it, what they're doing is they're cleaning off the pad itself. So the way that the pad printer works is the uh, ink is transferred to the print plate, and it's uh, sort of squeegeed off so that the only ink that's left is in the recess where the engraving is, and the silicon pad comes down and it presses down on that plate and when it come when it picks up it actually picks up the ink with it and then you and then as the the pad moves to the object that you're printing on it then transfers that ink from the silicon pad down to the part that you're printing but as you're working you end up with you know extra ink that ends up on them on the pad or you know maybe not all of the ink transfers over and things like that and so you want to clean off any of that unused ink that's on the silicon pad itself. With uh, with these printers, the easiest way to clean them is to actually use it's to use packing tape. And so you just use the sticky side of the packing tape to clean it off. And in these more advanced machines, they actually have a roll of packing tape that unwinds, and at you know sort of regular intervals. And the pads actually go down and stick themselves onto the packing tape to clean themselves off. And then the packing tape, uh, you know, advances a little bit so that you get a clean spot every time you um, you put the pad down on it. So very, very simple uh, and it, it works effectively. But when it, with my machine, it doesn't have an automated cleaning cycle. So all you have to do is just take a piece of packing tape and just, you know, clean it off manually. So you are the cleaning cycle. Yeah, I am the cleaning cycle. That's fascinating. I would not have guessed that. It's that's, that's such a an effective hack. <laughs> it really is. And the thing is, you don't want to use something like the lacquer thinner on it because it'll damage the silicon. So you you know you do want to be careful with those silicon pads, and uh, and you you want to be careful what you're cleaning them with. You know, this idea of using the packing tape is just perfect. So you got to make sure you're not using the dollar store junk. You get some some decent packing tape from Staples. The, the the irony is that you actually want to use the cheaper packing tape. You don't oh, for want, real? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just want the cheapest packing tape because you don't want something that's got, that's too sticky. And so it just needs to have enough enough stickiness to it that it will, you know, that'll actually work. So that cheap duck brand tape that's out there that that uh, dollar stores and Canadian Tire and places like that carry the stuff that's horrible that doesn't actually stick to anything. That's the perfect tape for this sort of situation. When I was saying dollar store packing tape, I was. was thinking of the the ones where all the the adhesive actually peels off of the the plastic and uh, <laughs> you don't want that happening on your, your well no that's pad. probably that's probably a little bit too too cheap but it's the right amount of cheap exactly there's really cheap packing tape out there and it's uh yeah you, you don't need anything special it's uh you don't want the really really high end like 3m packing tape for instance that's you know super adhesive you don't want that you you, you just want something something inexpensive that's not going to tear on you as you take it off the roll and isn't going to leave residue everywhere. Now you mentioned too, some people are, are pad printing t-shirts. I, I can't mm-hmm. imagine, well, I, I can imagine, but I have not 
seen it, so my brain is having trouble picturing this machine in, in operation. How big is the, the silicon pad on, on one of those things? Well, you can get large silicon pads for some of these machines. Um, you can get huge print surfaces on them. And uh, I've I've never seen any of them in person, but I've seen uh, images online of people doing it and videos and stuff like that of people pad printing T-shirts. So it is a thing, and it, uh, it apparently it works. I would certainly not be interested in doing it with my machine. The print area the, on my machine is just too small to really be useful for a T-shirt. Uh, I can I think the maximum image size I can use on mine is 80 millimeters in diameter, which you know you'd have to have quite a few different print plates to be able to get uh, a decent sized image onto a t-shirt and the alignment issues on that would just be an absolute nightmare so I, I, it wouldn't be worth it for me to do that but uh, yeah you can certainly do it did you get a variety of pads with your printer or did you select just one and that that's what you're going to work with i've got two pads for my printer one that's a little bit larger one that's a little bit smaller uh, you do sort of want to try and set up your pads for the the correct area that you're printing on. Uh, you don't want them too large or too small. I've got mine based on a couple of different sized pieces that I want to work on. Uh, so I've got some smaller dials and some larger dials. And uh, so I've got a couple of different pads based on, on what I'm interested in working on. Do they have the sort of classic profile? It's kind of like the, the top of an egg? Yeah, you can get all sorts of different sizes and shapes. They're sort of, they sort of have a, they're cone shape, but they've got a very, very rounded tip on them. Instead of having a sharp tip, it's a very, a very round tip on it. You know, that's sort of the classic shape that works well for a round design like this. But if you were printing something like, let's say a pen, you actually want it to be a different shape. So it's more of a, more of a rectangular shape that, uh, that comes out of it. So it really just depends on the type of object that you're printing and, and what's most appropriate for the, uh, the shape that you're trying to transfer onto. And do the folks at Kent Printers have any suggestions or tips for dust mitigation? So a lot of that is just comes down to cleanliness using uh, lint-free cloths when it comes to cleaning things up, cleaning everything religiously. It's, it's important basically to keep everything super clean. Keep some lacquer thinner around all, at all times to keep things clean. Check your plates before you're putting them down. Make sure that they're they're free of any lint or anything like that because lint can actually scratch these plates like the it'll scratch the uh, lacquer surface that's on them so you do have to be careful with that and you have to make sure that you're not you're not dragging things around that you don't want to also you have to make sure that you're you know let's say you're using something like a thin paper like even a toilet paper or something like that uh, to clean off you can actually catch that paper on the rough edges of the print plate you know where it's where the laser's engraved. Uh, let's say a, a letter. The edges of that letter are quite sharp when you compare it to something like a toilet paper. So if you're not careful, you'll actually leave little strands of toilet paper behind on that plate as you're cleaning it down. So something more durable and lint-free, something like maybe the um, sort of those blue shop towels that are that are pretty common these days. Uh, that would be a more appropriate solution for wiping down those plates because it's it's going to have a much lower chance of actually leaving lint behind and and damaging your print in some way and even those blue shop towels can produce some some debris so if, if you want to be really really sure then you can go the, the clean room route and get yourself some kim wipes from kim tech yeah i'm i'm gonna tr experiment with some things and see what works best uh the the shop towels are pretty good in terms of being lint free and um and they're durable enough that they're not 
going to be too bad. So we'll see how that works out. I'm, you know, I just have to experiment with this. And, and some of it also comes down to, I can easily clean off the plate uh, if I need to, like I can sort of inspect it and, and clean off any little bits and pieces that I need to, uh, when the, if it comes down to that. So, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, as you're cleaning it, you're putting it down onto the printer. And then from that point on, you shouldn't have to worry about there being dust coming into it as long as you're not in a super dusty environment. And so this is going to get set up in a part of the shop that's all clean stuff and uh, shouldn't be an issue for that. So bird's eye view, what was the the trading itself actually like? Or what did it consist of? Um, first parts were how to set the machine up, you know, what's expected in terms of compressed air, uh, power, those sorts of things, uh, because it does use compressed air, as I said, to um, to move everything around. And then a lot of it comes down to how to actually get the plate onto the machine so that it's uh, registered properly and also so that you don't lose your ink, right? You don't want to, uh, because you are tipping this ink pot over, uh, it's on, you know, it's on the metal plate that you're, that you're using, but it's upside down. So if you knock that ink plate, ink pot off of your plate, then you, you know, you spray all of that ink all over the place. So. Uh, a lot of it comes down to how to load the machine properly and it, definitely how to get it consistently loaded. Uh, that's a big thing as well because you want to be able to get that registration accurate so that every time you put that print plate back on, it's registered properly and you don't have to worry about doing uh, too many adjustments to be able to get it in the right spot. Uh, fortunately, the way that I'm designing my dials, I've got... Uh, basically the same same template that I'm using all the time with the same registration marks. Uh, once I set the machine up, if all I'm doing is dials, I should not have to do very much adjustment to get everything lined up properly. And the registration marks that I've got on the print will allow me to very quickly uh, dial it in and make sure that I'm I'm printing exactly where I need to. So are there any particular niceties that your machine affords for making adjustments to the registration yeah it's got a whole pile of adjustments we were actually talking about um if i've got you know if i was going to put anything on there to adjust the rotational axis of the print and they do actually have an adjustment for that that was something i wasn't expecting Uh, you can actually tip the table a little bit while keeping it in planar like keeping it flat Uh, you can tip it around that center point there's a pin in the middle of it that allows you to to do that so things like that were really nice uh, that uh, that I wasn't expecting. A lot of it's just very, very simple. It, it's on a simple dovetail sliding mechanism. The work holding surface that's there, the table that's there, is just on very simple dovetail rails. So it's very easy to adjust them, you know, and, and just use the screws to be able to, to quickly adjust things. So all very classic, very um, simple mechanical ways of doing these adjustments you don't have to be able to do um you know minute adjustments while you're machining or things like that so there's no cutting forces that are involved with it so there's a, you don't have to go overboard and and do the the sorts of things we have to do on a lathe or a mill for instance to get uh, motion uh, on that table that's highly accurate and can handle those cutting forces so it's a, a very simple design tar, you know tried and tested and uh, very, very easy to to manipulate and, and adjust. Something I had never considered before, because I did not know that, that print plates uh, were made in aluminum, 
I've only been familiar with uh, doing it in big blocks of steel or, or sheet steel. You alluded to the, the fact that things can, can get messy with the ink cup if you're not installing everything correctly. One of the niceties with steel is that the ink cup is, is magnetic and you just mm-hmm. slap the two together and then place your, your print plate down. So how are you actually affixing the the ink cup to the, the aluminum plate in such a way that everything stays together as you, you turn it to, to set it all up in the, the printer there? Yeah, you're just using a steel plate as a backing plate behind the aluminum. Yeah, it's very simple. That's what I figured it would be because I was just adding another another element, uh, another variable. Yeah, it is another variable, and it is something that you have to you have to make sure is aligned properly. But the nice thing is that the steel plate it doesn't matter how well aligned it is because it's uh, it's unimportant to the accuracy of the printing. All it's doing is just providing that magnetic surface to be able to. Um, uh, to be able to s- sort of hold down that print cup or uh, the ink cup and uh yeah it's it's super simple uh again it's easy to get something off just a little bit so that it's not printing properly but as long as you pay attention to where the alignments are uh how things are held down where things are uh it's it's pretty idiot proof when it comes to getting reliable prints as long as you pay attention to a couple of key things so they showed you how to set up the machine, how to how to get everything registered, and how to put that the ink in place without making a, a big mess. What else did they they cover? At that point, we then pulled out my print plate and we actually started trying to print. So I had a, a quick and dirty little fixture that I had made on the mill the day before to hold some uh, some plates in in the machine, and I brought down a couple of nickel silver plates to be able to print on, uh, just as you know, cheap throwaway things that I could uh, I could use that was going to give me roughly similar properties to what I'm eventually going to print on. And then I also brought down some silver plates as well. Uh, so I had uh, some sterling and some fine silver. Uh, I just wanted to see if there was any real difference in terms of how the ink reacted between the three different metals. And it turns out that the, the silver is very, very nice to print on. It, it The ink adheres to it well. There was no issues with it pulling off or anything like that. So it was. Uh, it, it, I was very happy to see that that there weren't really any issues with the uh, the ink adhering to the silver because unfortunately, uh, sometimes with precious metals, things like inks and stuff like that just don't don't work very well on them. So it was nice to see that uh, that wasn't an issue here. Now I'm sure it must have been a relief to discover that, and I'm I'm sure it must have felt great too to finally see this dial design that you've been working on uh, not only by yourself, but in partnership with, with someone else who's come up on the, the show here a number of times, the design that the two of you have been laboring all these months over to, to finally see those efforts bear fruit. What was that like? Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, as you allude to, Lee, who we've been talking about quite a bit with his one-hour watch series, uh, he actually designs typefaces for watch dials. Uh, that's what he uh, did his master's degree in is typeface for horology and so when uh, i chatted with him in uh, the summer when i met up with him and matt at the uh, british museum we uh, we spent some time chatting and uh, i asked him if he was interested in working with me on a typeface so uh, he agreed to doing that and we worked together over uh, over about a month or so maybe six weeks uh, going back and forth a little bit and making some uh, changes to a typeface that i liked and uh, we've now made it mine it's uh, completely custom for me, uh, so it was uh, it was really nice to be able to work with Lee on that and have 
somebody who understands typeface design and uh, and horology as well and all of the little things that go into making a good typeface and then not only making a good typeface but making it excellent for dials and so that was really nice to have somebody like Lee there uh, working with me on that so uh, all credit goes to him for what I've got now it's a it's a typeface that I love and I th- I'm planning on using it for a long time and it was great to see this in person I've been looking at it on a massive screen I can you know it, it's it's difficult as we've talked about before having this image blown up a thousand times on a 27 inch monitor that's sitting sort of 12 inches in front of your face and looking at all these minute little details and things like that but it doesn't give you a sense of what it's going to look like at one-to-one scale and even printing it out on a laser printer is not really giving you a good representation of what it's going to look like because that paper just isn't metallic it's not giving you that feedback that reflection and it's not really quite as high resolution as what you expect when you actually start seeing it in print uh, from a pad printer so seeing all of those things come together all of those elements come together was great and even from the second or third print that we had coming off of the printer it was looking so much better than any of the prints that i've seen coming off of a laser printer so far Uh, and that was such a relief to be able to see just how good it was looking uh, I'm still need to do some tweaking in terms of the overall layout of the the dial. I think um, I'm going to make a couple of dials and uh, completely finish them. You know, do all the engine turning, do all the printing, everything like that, and put them into a few of my prototype cases. And I'll need to live with them for a little bit just to see if the dial design is what I need, if the layout is what I need. But from a typeface point of view, I'm so happy with what Lee was able to do for me and what uh, the way that it's come out and the way that it actually looks, you know, in the metal now. So what are some of the tweaks and adjustments that you guys made as you worked back and forth on the, on this typeface and bringing it towards this the point that is evolved to now? Yeah, so I'd given him a base typeface that I liked and I had been playing around with a little bit on my own. And we went back and forth a little bit talking about some of the changes that we wanted to make. Of course, one of the the biggest part of what we're talking about here we're not redesigning a complete typeface. We're mostly redesigning numbers. And so there were a few things that we wanted to do. There were a couple of unique numbers that were in the typeface that I really liked and I wanted to keep. And I wanted to keep those, um, you know, those sort of that feeling of it. But we needed to adjust some of the proportions of those numbers. And then there were a few things like the number four that's in there that is completely unique. It, it doesn't have any relation to the original typeface. Uh, because we wanted to play around with that a little bit and get something that was a little bit different. So there's a, a few things like that where we've completely re redesigned particular things. Uh, when it came to my name that's on there, uh, we didn't redesign all of the letters in the typeface. There was just no need to. I'm I'm only using a couple of letters for my name. And so a couple of those are specific to the way that I'm doing my design, the way that my name happens to work out. It's kind of nice seeing some of those things like one of the letters M is actually uh, completely unique and is specific to the way that it's going to be used in the design itself. Uh, so little things like that, which are really great. They're nice little details that Lee brought to it and uh, and I'm I'm super pleased with it. I want to 
I first saw it with uh, all the numerals on it. I had mentioned to you that the, the numeral eight reminded me of the, the Slim de Omez, which you said uh, you had, had actually not ever seen before. Now, was that, you, the, the number four you say is entirely unique. Is, is that number eight similar to the, the inspiring font, or is that something you came up with on your own or, or something that Lee came up with? No, the number eight that was in there is actually similar to the original typeface that we used. And uh, so the it's two circles uh, with a small dash in between them, which is uh, which is rather different than a lot of um, eights, because in most cases the top circle and the bottom circle are actually connected directly to each other. This one has a little a little line in between the two of them, a little vertical line in between the two of them, and that is unique to the original typeface. Uh, the there were some changes that were made to it because we needed to make it a little bit more legible at a very small size. Of course, most of these typefaces are designed for print work, you know, are designed to be seen much larger than what they're what they're being printed on a dial. So there are certain affordances that you need to make when it comes to printing on a dial. You, typically, you need to make the font a lot bolder than it would be normally. And so there's little things like that that um, that we had to play with. Uh, we also adjusted some of the proportions of the that number so that it looked a little bit better, uh, and we adjusted all the proportions of the numbers a little bit to um, to change the balance uh, of them, uh, particularly the vertical balance of them. So uh, a lot of little things like that. And they're the sorts of things that, you know, if I showed you the original typeface and I showed you this one, you'd say, oh yeah, okay, I can see the differences. But when you actually get down to the sort of the nitty gritty details of it, you wouldn't necessarily realize all the little changes that were made to make it look the way that it does. Uh, and that's where somebody who knows about typeface design and understands those sorts of tweaks is really handy. Uh, there were a couple of times where Lee had made some, made a change to something, and I said to him, I'm like, I can't tell you why I don't like this, but I know that I don't like it. And unfortunately, I wasn't. there were a couple of times where I wasn't super helpful other than to be able to say, that doesn't feel right. And so he would make a couple more changes, and it, we would be able to sort of, dial in and figure out what it was that I didn't like in the in the changes that he'd made originally. So it's uh it's nice to to see those sorts of things happening uh in in sort of little changes here and there and you don't need to make massive t- changes to a typeface to dramatically affect the way that it looks. Uh, a lot of these tweaks are very subtle, but they they certainly do make a difference at the end of the day. Was there any numeral or letter that proved to be particularly challenging to get right? I think the the numbers that I felt were a little bit odd at first were the two, the nine, and the six, and a lot of it had to do with the balance, uh, the vertical balance of them, um, sort of sort of how much weight was was in the number and where that balance point was. Um, so that was I, I'm not really doing a great job of explaining it because I don't have the vocabulary of sort of a typeface designer, but some of the changes that were made originally to it were a little bit too far past where I wanted them. And so being able to make some small changes like that made a big difference to me in terms of how I felt the the numbers were balanced. I wanted them to feel like they were weighted in a particular way. And so that, that took a little bit of tweaking. The M that's being used for my middle name, that was something that we went back and forth a number of times um, to try and decide how we wanted it to look and uh, how to balance it so that it it gave the correct impression of what we wanted, but didn't look too weird. And so that was one that we went back and forth on a number of times. And I love the way that it's come out. Uh, I think that it's um, it's a neat little design 
idea that uh, that Lee put into it. Yeah, I'm I'm super happy with the way that that, uh, that that particular letter turned out, and I think that one was one that we went back and forth on a few times. Is there a particular reason you decided to to go with your initials on the dial in addition to your last name? In terms of the use of using initials and then a last name, I think that's a that's a pretty common use of of sort of people's names on watches. It's something that's been done for quite a long time. I'm less interested in having just my last name on it because I think it uh, it's just too common of a name. You know, it would be like putting Smith on it or something like that. It's not quite that that common, but um, you know, like Roger doesn't doesn't just put Smith on his. Uh, on his watch dials because I think that would be a little bit too too generic. And it's the same thing in this case. I I, I was less comfortable putting just my last name on there and I like the way that the uh that it looks with my initials on there as well. Yeah, the middle initial there does have a nice touch to it with the, the little flourishes that you guys added under the name there. And Philippe Dufour suffers with a, a similar problem having a, a very common French last <laughs> name. So he, he's just gone all out and has his full name there on the dial. Whereas uh, Carrie Votilan is a, a kind of a more unique name, uh, particularly in the world of horology. So he can get away with just, just using his last name. Yeah, yeah. Somebody like Carrie can get away with that. Um, Philippe, yeah, he's he's got a, the same problem as I do. I didn't really want to put Chris on there. And Christopher just becomes ridiculous because then, you know, I've got text going the entire way around the dial just to put my name on the thing. So it... Uh, it's it's a bit of a struggle with my names. Um, again, Chris is such a common name, especially if you're a male, North America, English-speaking Europe that was born in the 70s. The chances of you being named Chris were astronomically high. So it again, it's such a common name, and I, I didn't really want to use just that. So now that you've you've got the the pad printer and uh, you can, can see what your dial looks like in the metal, the next step is is to engine turn one. Uh, how far yep. out do you think it's it's going to be before you you have a, a fully engine turned and, and pad printed Chris Manning original on your wrist? Probably sometime in January. I've got a couple of things I've got to do to um, my setup in terms of where things are located and and how I'm working on some things. So it's going to be a little bit before I've got my engine turn dial completely set up properly i also need to work on the blank the dial blank design and the jigs we've talked about that a little bit in terms of what my intention is for that Uh, being able to have a an indexing system on the actual blank dial so that i can easily move it from one machine to another and be able to maintain registration so i'm i've got a couple of design ideas that i want to use for that but i wanted to get the printer in place so that I've got all of the machines available to me and I know how the printing is working and I know how that machine is set up and what the work holding needs to look like. I already know, of course, what the work holding needs to look like on something like my pantograph and my lathe and my engines and stuff like that. So there's a number of different pieces that have to go together so that I can uh, I can do that reliably. So the next step isn't actually engine turning them uh, you know, if I wanted to do just a one-off, it would be easy for me to, you know, just sort of do a one-off. But I, I don't like doing that. I like being able to put the time and effort in so that I can do it properly every time. And that's going to mean, in this case, making proper work holding so that I can make that dial blank, move it from machine to machine, and from process to process, and be able to do it. So there are some hand 
processes that are involved, like some hand work processes. Uh, there's stuff like the engine turning, of course, which is which is all hand done. Uh, there's the printing, which is not hand done, but it's still pretty sort of hands-on, sort of one-off. The pantograph work is going to be fairly, you know, sort of hands-on. All those all those little details. Um, it, it makes a difference if you have that work holding set up so that it's easy to move from one to the other. And it becomes less about, you know, sort of that one-off feel and and technique. And the problem with doing the sort of doing everything as if it's a one-off is that it's very easy to make mistakes. It's very easy to destroy hours worth of work by printing something wrong. So for instance, printing the text on the dials is going to happen after I've done the engine turning. And that's the sort of thing where it would be very easy to, you know, engine turn this dial, cut out the moon phase window and go to print it. And then you screw up and you move the print over by two thousandths of an inch. And all of a sudden you've, you know, you've got to figure out how to get that ink off so that you can go back and, you know, and, and do it properly again. Well, taking that ink off may damage the finish that you've got on the engine turning or something else. So it's really frustrating when you try doing everything as a one-off piece. And especially when this is something that I need to be able to produce reliably and, uh, and consistently. And so the big part of that is to, is to have that work holding set up so that I can actually do it reliably and, and consistently. So couldn't you just use some, some lacquer thinner to, to take the, the ink off of, of the dial to, to rectify something like that? If if you get it fast enough, it can. The Before the ink sets, you can get the lacquer thinner in there and it'll actually get it off. Once it's set, though, you need to use a little bit of elbow grease to get it off, which then risks damaging the work that you've already done on the dial. And yeah, it's it's always risky business, right? And while the printing is the easiest to reverse, it still has the risk of damaging what you've already done. So... If you've done 20 hours of engine turning on a dial and you go off and, you know, then destroy it by, by doing something like that, it's, it's a little frustrating. So got to, got to get everything right and get it all aligned properly. I know silver is a a noble metal, but it does react with, with various substances like pickling solutions and whatnot. I've never exposed silver to a a thinner of any kind. Does a thinner impact the the surface of, of silver at all? I suspect it would depend on the thinner and also it depends on the surface that's there. Remember that we're talking about with engine turning, we're talking about a very reflective surface and it's very obvious when something damages it. So if you've got, you don't even need to necessarily damage all of it. Just a little part of it would be enough to catch the eye. If something is, let's say a little bit uh, dull compared to the rest of the engine turning where it's all bright, then you could end up with problems with that. So it's a it's a risk that I just don't want to take, so I, I want to make sure that the the dial is printed properly and is actually uh, actually aligned properly when I do it. So I've I've got a couple of different prints that I'm doing on it. The first one is the sort of the layout lines on the dial, so it's where I'm cutting some of the engine turned lines and things like that. And then most of those lines are actually going to get cut away as I'm engine turning the the dial, uh, but the thing that does get left behind is the registration marks. And so I can then check those registration marks from the first print with the second print and make sure that everything's actually 
uh, coming out right and it's all sitting in the right spot. It's a clever solution doing a print to help guide the actual engine turning work. I, that's not something I've, I've heard of anyone doing before. Is that something you came up with yourself or did you draw inspiration from somewhere? The engine turning itself, I'm not necessarily putting down lines, so I wouldn't bother putting down each individual line, for instance, for the engine turning. It's more things like where the um, the separation lines are. You'll you'll engine turn a pattern up to a particular line, and then once you finish that, you'll then cut away that line. So you're actually trimming the end of the engine turned pattern so that you get a nice clean edge on that. And you also have a, a different line that's separating it. So if you take a look at a lot of brigade dials, for instance, there's a little uh, sort of bumpy up and down pattern that um, that's you know let's say a quarter of a millimeter in uh, across, and it will sort of cut out this path that takes away the ends of those engine turned lines, and at the same time it provides sort of a clean break between the two different areas. So let's say the, the background versus the chapter ring. And that sort of thing is, is really handy to be able to, to put on the dial to, to sort of give it that, that little bit of separation and uh, sort of better design sense, if you will. And those are the kinds of lines that I'll put on there. So I'll know this is exactly where the pattern for the background needs to go up until. You know, I know that this is where my name is going to get printed on the dial, so I don't want to engine turn that area. You know, this is where the chapter ring starts and finishes, so I don't want to engine turn inside of those, you know, inside of that chapter ring because I want that left uh, a different texture. Uh, so that's where those those layout lines help me out. And uh, I, I don't know if other people do that. I suspect they probably do. Um, but this this just helps me out, and it sort of acts as a sanity check so that I know exactly where it is that I need to be cutting. And in terms of making sure your registration points line up, it can't recommend putting a sheet of plastic or anything like that down over the dial to to do your initial test print onto. Uh, they didn't, and I think in in my case, what I would probably do is uh, have a couple of nickel silver dummy dials sitting around uh, with the same sort of blank dial design, so that it registers on the correct holes. And then I wouldn't bother doing all the engine turning work on it. What I would do is I would just print the the test lines or the the layout lines that I've got with the first print and then have a couple of those sitting there so that when it comes time to printing the text, I could then just print onto those and make sure that the registration marks that I've got line up properly and that everything looks right. And that's what I would test against. And that way I can also make sure that I'm getting the correct fill and the the there hasn't been damage to the print or anything like that. So a lot of that would just come down to sort of doing some dummy dials, uh, but ones that I hadn't actually spent the time and effort to engine turn. Was there an actual specification for the, the tolerance on your, your pad printer in terms of repeatability? Uh, I, there probably is. It's uh, it's certainly more accurate than I would need it to be. I think that if I was accurate to within maybe a half a thousandth of an inch, it would probably be fine. And as far as I know, it should be able to, to print repeatably within that. So anything more than a thousandth of an inch under the right circumstances, you would start to see that shift, especially because I've got so many concentric circles and repetitive patterns and things like that, that have been accurately machined through engine turning and through other methods. It would become obvious if all of your text was shifted a couple of thousandths of an inch, let's say to the left, 
the eye is very, very good at picking that kind of that kind of thing up. So uh, it will certainly be repeatable enough for me to be able to get away with that. Uh, I know when I was chatting with uh, Crispin Jones at uh, Mr. Jones Watches, they're doing prints that require much higher tolerances than what I do or than what I'll need. And they're able to consistently hit those prints uh, using the same printer. So I I expect as long as I'm paying attention and I make sure the print plates are registered properly and I make sure that I do my test prints, I see no reason why I can't hit the, the accuracy levels that I need. Well, this is a big step out of the way. I know you have a, a few other big steps still before you, but uh, it's it's exciting progress. Yeah, this is this is one of the big ones. This is um in terms of processes that I didn't know anything about 2 years ago, this is one of the big ones. I had no idea 2 years ago how I was going to make the style. And everything else I had a pretty good idea of what I was going to do. And uh this was the biggest one that I had no idea how I was going to get uh, get done in a way that I was happy with and that looked up to the same quality as what I was doing. I've seen a lot of people doing hand engraved dials and I'm I'm not a not a big fan of the the look on hand engraved dials. I find them just too inconsistent for my preferences. So this was something that I wanted to have absolutely bang on accurate. At some point I may play with other design ideas and other uh, ways of doing things like applied numerals and things like that. Uh, but this gets me a consistent dial design that I like and that I can reproduce and uh, and will look good. And that's the, the most important thing at the end of the day. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand. So what is it about all these these fellows named Chris having been born in, in the 70s? Because I, I do know a, a disproportionately high number of people named Chris born in, in that decade. Well, I, I will say first off, in in my own defense, I did not name myself, so it's uh, <laughs> it's not my fault, honestly. Yeah, Chris is one of those incredibly popular names, and uh, it's it's also frustrating because Chris is a short form for both uh, male and female names in English. So you get Christophers, Christians, Christiane, Christine. You know, you get all of these people who use Chris as a short form. And so I, I know in one of my classes in grade school, there were eight of us in a class of 21 with the name Chris, both male and female. So it was uh, when I say that it, you had a really good chance of being named Chris if you're my age, it, it's ridiculous just how common it is. I, I took us off on a terrible tangent. I'm sorry. I will I will redeem this. I will loop us back.